I'm assuming that nobody wants to trade places with me right now. <laughs> and some of you are thinking conjugal. That was an SAT word I must have missed because I don't really have what he, know what he's talking about. Is that like some area in South America or what is that? And so I'm also thinking about, like, what, if you're a visitor, what are you thinking right now? Oh, my gosh. What kind of church have I walked into? Well, the church you've walked into is one that tries to preach through books of the Bible. And so there are easier parts and harder parts and some that would make you feel a little bit more comfortable and some that might cause you to, to feel a little more uncomfortable. Uh, but we're trusting all of this is good for us and good for our soul, which is why it's written in the Bible. And this particularly, this section about sexual immorality that really begins back in chapter 6 and even to today for marriage, uh, very few things could be more important than this for ourselves, but also it's, um, it's such a part of our culture. So before we look at some of these things specifically, I want to try to clarify uh, with three comments so we look at the, the passage as a whole. Uh, number one, when we address matters of sexuality, it's important to start with the gospel. And it might be important to start with the gospel no matter what area we address, but particularly sexuality, we need to think and be reminded of chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul says, I give thanks to God for you. These are the, the, the Christians in Corinth to, to whom he's writing. Because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. He's the first thing he wants to say is, guys, I'm going to I'm going to address all kinds of problems here in this in this church. But the first thing I want to say before I address the problems is you're you're a person that has has received the grace of Jesus Christ. So let's let's make sure the gospels tacked down tightly in everyone's heart and soul. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what God has done. Now, I'm going to talk about what you do, but I don't want you to think that if you check all these boxes, then suddenly you, you get into heaven. I want you to know you get into heaven because of Jesus. And because of Jesus and his grace, then you want to live in a different way. And now I'm going to tell you how to live in that way. But we need to understand the gospel. He repeats it again, chapter 6, verse 11. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So if the grace of God isn't operative in our lives, especially on this topic, everyone would be hanging their head. Everyone here would say, oh gosh, I've got so much shame and guilt about what has happened, what I've done, what I've places I put myself in, or even if it's just your thoughts. Nobody wants to have your thoughts projected up here on the screen in terms of what they think about sexually. So the first thing that we need to start with is a real good, tight understanding of the gospel, that, that God's grace covers every sin. There's not some area in your life that his blood isn't sufficient for. So now we're asking ourselves, okay, now that we know the gospel, how do we live? How do we glorify God in our bodies? Which is what Paul's talking about here in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Second comment, this is a complicated passage. And because it's complicated, we have to take a great care in reading and understanding. 
And one thing that we need to keep in mind is Paul is writing a letter to a particular church about particular problems. Some parts of the Bible are more general. This one is specific. He's saying, hey, I planted this church. I understand this city. I know what you guys are going through. You all have written a letter to me. You've asked me particular questions, and I'm trying to answer those as specifically as I can. So if you look at verse 1, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he's just responding back here to a letter. They've given him a host of questions, and we'll run through this in the chapters that come after chapter 7. So in chapter 7, Paul's not delivering a complete biblical view on marriage. He's trying to address a particular topic all the great things about the mystery of marriage, all the beautiful pictures about how marriage is a good picture of Christ in the church, all the stuff he talks about in Ephesians 5, he doesn't talk about here. He's not talking about it because that's not the question that they're asking. He's trying to answer a very specific question. And so we've got to have that in our minds. The other thing that makes it complicated is you see in verse 10 and then in verse 12 and again in verse 25, He's saying, now, now I'm going to say something that the Lord said, verse 10, and now I'm going to say, well, no, this, the Lord didn't say this, now I'm saying. He's trying to clarify that. Because Jesus didn't speak to every possible situation. Paul's saying, hey, in verse 10, I can tell you what the Lord said, and I'm going to give you a principle of how to live. But then in the other verses, he's saying, now, there's no biblical principle here that I can give you from Jesus' lips, but I'm, I'm offering pastoral wisdom. I'm saying I think because of how we think about the Bible, and this is a different situation, this is how I would answer that question. So he's just trying to give pastoral wisdom to the people here in Corinth. Number three, final comment here. In verse 1, Paul is tackling the very first question. First six chapters, he's just been talking about things that he had on his mind. But now in chapter 7, he's saying, hey, you wrote me a letter, and I'm trying to respond specifically to that letter. And you notice there's quotations. There probably is quotation marks around this statement. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this is a belief that's been circulating through the church at Corinth. And the members in this church are asking for clarity. They're saying, hey, people have been saying this, and we're not sure how to respond to this. Can you respond to it? Does that make sense? We've talked about this many times in our series on Corinth. Corinth was a hyper-sexualized culture. In Corinth, and this would be hard for you to imagine, you couldn't escape the idea of sexuality. Can you imagine living in a culture that, like, everywhere you went, sexuality was part of that culture? Yeah, you can. We live in that kind of culture. But in Corinth, there was a temple that was at the top of the hill. So whenever you went outside, you saw the temple to Aphrodite, this goddess of pleasure. And you knew in that temple there were a thousand prostitutes. And people, you could see them streaming up and back from the temple all day. So you couldn't escape this as the culture. And Paul understands that. And apparently in this hyper-sexualized culture, there was a hyper-spiritualized group of people who, who were swinging too far in the other direction. And they were just saying, hey, there, there's so much sexual dysfunction here in our culture, let's just get rid of sex altogether. 
You hear that? They, they look at the culture and say it's too complicated. And instead of trying to work out the complications, let's just sort of get rid of it. Let's put a boundary line to say, hey, no more sexual activity. So I want to make sure it's clear that this opening statement isn't Paul's belief. This opening statement isn't a biblical belief. This opening statement is a misguided belief that's circulating through the church of Corinth. See, if you don't understand that, then you might read this passage in the wrong way. So it's very helpful to have that clear in your mind. And I think it's helpful to just pause here and say something that most of us already know. And that inside of a church, there's always going to be nutty hyper-spiritualized people. Now, I'm not looking at anybody particular when I say that. And I thought, you know, maybe you should turn to your neighbor and say, you know, in the church there's always going to be nutty people, but then you might be sitting next to a nutty person, and that wouldn't be good. But I think it's just helpful to see what's going to happen in this church. Happens in every church, happens in every culture, happens all the time. You see something, and like a pendulum, you say, I don't want that. So you swing, and then you swing too far in the other direction, and you eliminate things that really could be helpful for you or might just be neutral. But instead of that, you just swing over here to the other side. That kind of thing happens all the time. My favorite story on that is a friend of mine was uh, had a broken leg, and he went to a church here in town. And during the service at some point, they were you were supposed to pray with the people that were right around you. So he was a little uncomfortable, but he just took hands with these three or four people. He didn't know them. And this one gentleman there said, hey, I see that you have a broken leg. Can I just pray for healing? He's like, please, that'd be awesome. And he said, well, I know in the Bible it says you're supposed to anoint your head with oil when you're praying for those who are sick. But I don't have any oil, but I do have some chapstick. (laughs) So he got a little chapstick and made a cross on his forehead and prayed for him. And I said, well, what did you do? He said, the whole service I wondered how I could wipe the chapstick off my forehead without this guy seeing it. Well, that's nutty. Let's just say that's nutty. I'm not saying the guy's not a Christian. He's just a nutty Christian. That's okay. There are nutty Christians out there. But I just wouldn't want you, especially if you're new to the faith, to allow the nutty people to drive you away from seeing Jesus. There's always going to be some overreaction. There's always going to be some nuttiness. That's, we under, you're just going to understand that. But don't allow that to drive you from seeing the beauty of Jesus. And Paul, thankfully, he's giving us the word. We have the word that we're reading in the context of a community. I'm not just reading it all by myself. I'm reading it together. And together, hopefully, we're we're keeping ourselves away from just being nutty or swinging too far in another direction. All right? So now let's talk about how Paul tackles this misguided belief here in verse 1. Two things he does. First, he puts a sexual relationship in its proper place. That's marriage. And he does that in verses 2 through 5. So here's the question, and then he wants to basically answer that question in verses 2 through 5. And then he has three different stations people would find themselves in their life. Verse 8, and he gives them some advice. Verse 8, to the unmarried. Verse 10, to the married. Verse 12, 
to the rest. You see that he's saying here, let me tell you basically a, the, how, how uh, sexual intimacy is supposed to work by God's design. And then let me address three different groups of people that I know are in the church. I'm sure Paul was thinking about certain people he had founded the church. So there's people there that are married. There are people there that are unmarried. And then there's this group of the rest, which are people who have gotten married as unbelievers. And one person has become a believer. Now, what do they do? So he's trying to, yeah, I just want you to hear his pastoral heart. I'm trying to help all these people out with this particular question. And the first thing I want to do is just uh, try to address very briefly these three different stations. So let's look together at verse 7, 8, and 9. Paul says, I wish that all were as I, as my, as I myself am. That means single. But each has his own gift from God. So... One has one kind, have the kind of being single. Other people have this other gift of uh, being married. If you're unmarried, verse 8, to the unmarried or the widows or widower, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry. For it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So when you read this whole chapter, there's really no question that Paul has a preference to singleness. He's single. There's a lot of scholarly debate whether he was ever married or not. It doesn't really matter. But he has his reasons for being single. You can read when you go home, verse 25 to 35, he gives you his reasons that he thinks it's helpful to be single. But he's clear to point out that not everyone's wired the way he is. He sees it as a gift. I have the gift of being single at this point. My sexual appetites aren't so much that I feel compelled to get married, but some people really want to get married. That's fine. It's not a sin, he says in verse 36. Everyone has their own gift. So if you're unmarried, there's some benefits of being unmarried and single. If you're, if you're widowed or unmarried and you want to get married, that's fine. Totally understand that. Number two, the second group, verse 10 through 11 To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband shouldn't separate or divorce his wife, verses 10 and 11. Now, let's remember the context. The question the people in Corinth are are dealing with is they're hearing that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's, that's what's circulating in the church from some nutty person. All right? So some people who are married are saying, well, I guess I should just get a divorce, right? I mean, it doesn't matter because I'm not having sex anymore with my wife, and she's not having it with me, so let's just get a divorce and we can just be single. Does that make sense? That's what they're thinking. And Paul comes back and says, no, no. You should definitely stay married. Now, look, he doesn't address every possible reason somebody could get a divorce. He doesn't bring in all this other information. He's addressing one particular issue here in Corinth where two people are inclined to get a divorce because of this statement. And he's saying, no, you should stay married. Number three, chapter, I mean, verse 12 and 13. But to the rest... No, you know the problem now because I've told it to you. 
Two people who were unmarried or unbelievers got married. One person became a believer. And the believer is saying, well, I shouldn't have this kind of intimacy with an unbeliever, so maybe I should get a divorce. And what does Paul say to that? No, you should stay together. As long as the unbelieving spouse consents to live with you, then you should stay together because it's a great benefit to the unbelieving spouse and it's a great benefit to the children that you have. But if that unbelieving spouse decides to leave you, then that, then that happens. That's okay with Paul. You shouldn't make it happen. As the believer, you should be winsome. You should be Christ-like in your marriage. But if the person says, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with you, then he says, may it be or let it be so in verse 15. So those are the three stations in life Paul addresses. As I got to the end of that part of this sermon, I thought, I bet, I bet there are going to be some people right at this point that are having a discussion in their mind. Oh, what about when blank happens, Right? Because you know somebody, this may be you, you know somebody, somebody in your family, they've had this some kind of weird situation, and you're saying, well, what about when blank happens? And I, would, I might feel that. And I feel like this sermon is the kind of sermon where the pastor gets roasted for lunch. I'm okay with that. I understand. And I would say to your question that has this blank, that that's a great question. But that may not be the question Paul's answering right here. You might have to go to a different place in the Bible to find the answer to your question about what happens when or if. Does that make sense? So we want to be careful here to not make every situation fit into this particular uh, scripture. We don't want to take this scripture and stretch it over too many situations. We want to understand Paul's really writing to a city and a church with a particular problem. And there's certainly things that we can learn about, but there would be other areas in the Bible you would want to visit if you want to talk about marriage and divorce. Does that make sense? So we have to be careful in that way. So now let's look at how uh, Paul puts this sexual relationship in the proper context, verses 2 through 5. Now, so he's taking the headline statement. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, verse 1, and here's his answer. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights or what is due is probably a better translation. What is due her and likewise the husband or the wife should give to her husband what is due him. Everybody understands that as sexual intimacy. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband, he doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive one another, period. Well, okay, except there could be these these limited seasons of prayer, but then come back together. See, he just says this, it's got to be limited. Why? So Satan wouldn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, so that's his answer. So let's try to unpack that answer with four, I'm calling these these four takeaways. The first thing that you want to notice is that Paul's primary concern here, and it serves as like bookends, verses 2, verse 5, is temptation to sexual immorality. 
He's really coming at this as I know the kind of culture you're in. I know there's going to be a lot of temptation to sexual immorality, and I'm particularly concerned about that. So he mentions it twice in verse 2 and verse 5. And this, this phrase, the temptation to sexual immorality in verse 2, in the Greek it's, it's plural. And it's a way of Paul saying, because there's a tidal wave of sexual temptation coming from your culture, and it's stoking your sexual hunger, then most of you are going to need to get married. That's his solution to this particular problem. And verse 5, he says, now you may have a special season dedicated to prayer, but you've got to come back together because Satan understands what's happening in the culture. Satan understands how that intersects with your sexual hunger. And if you're not married, you're very easily tempted to fall away from what God would want, both for men and for women. So let me just state the obvious here. Paul clearly understands that this sexual desire that everyone, almost everyone has is incredibly powerful. And we need to make sure that's locked down in our mind. This thing that he's talking about, he understands it has incredible power. Verse 9, he compares it to a fire or burning. And that burning desire, when it's bombarded with temptation from the culture, there's a tremendous amount of danger. So we can see that there's really not much difference here between Corinth and Wilmington. So Paul, first of all, wants to help us understand and help his church understand this thing I'm talking about, sexuality, it's powerful. And we don't ever want to minimize that in ourselves. We don't want to minimize it in somebody else. I mentioned this before in a sermon that sexual immorality brought down the strongest man in the world, Samson, the wisest man in the world, Solomon, and the man after God's own heart, David. So if it can bring, bring down sort of the godliest person, the wisest person, and the strongest person, he's understanding this has power. This is a powerful thing. It, and we never want to say it's just no big deal. It's, Paul's not saying it's no big deal. He's saying it's a big deal. It's like a fire. And if it's not handled correctly, then people get burned. Which is why back in chapter 6, his answer to this fire is flee. Flee the fire. If you've had a moment where sexual thoughts have been become consuming like a fire, you know there's not much that you can insert into those thought patterns. Paul understands that, so he's just trying to insert one word, flee. He's not saying, okay, let's read a book and have a novel about it. No. No, no. When you're when you're under fire, flee. He's just saying, just you run away, and then we can think about it later. But right now, just move away, flee away, because when this fire starts to burn, it can burn down a life. It can burn down a family. So flee. And I think this is important for everybody, but I would say especially for high school and college students and twenty somethings. You have grown up in a Corinthian culture. I read a very disturbing article from the New York Times that was printed, I think, this past week about teens and pornography. And it was really, it was disgusting just to read the facts 
but basically it was concluding that sex education now for most students comes from pornography. They get their idea of what sex is about or for or like from watching pornography. 93% of males, and I think 70% of females, have watched pornography before they were 18. And most of them, it was a multiple, 10 or more. And most parents who were asked about their teenagers, they thought it was half as bad as reality. So most parents have their heads stuck in the sand on this issue. They think, well, I'm sure a bad issue. It's not a bad issue for my, parent, my kids, and probably you're wrong. And so kids grow up and say, well, sexuality is like what I see from my phone or from my screen in some way. And so I want us to be very careful, but especially when you're in that age where you do a lot of dating and you're around other people that you're thinking about, hey, how can I get to know that person? You have to be very careful about the situations you put yourself in. And you may say, hey, this isn't, a, this isn't a bad situation for me. It's not tempting for me. And it may not be tempting for you, but it might be very tempting for somebody standing next to you. So you can't just think about yourself. You have to think about the person you're with or the crowd you're in. Because if you don't think about those things, you can get burned. And there are plenty of people who have these kind of scars in their life. And they're not scars that easily go away. And some of the scars could have been dealt with by just not being in certain situations, by just being smarter about how powerful this is. Even if it's not on you, it's on the person you're with. And you have to take, you have to take account of the whole situation. Second takeaway here. First of all, let's just remember how powerful it is. Let's not ever minimize it. Number two, Paul's answer for this burning, this sexual desire, is marriage. Verse two, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So the Bible is very clear that God designed sex for marriage. He thinks it's great. He wouldn't like this statement that's going around in Corinth. He'd say, no, I designed a man and a woman to get married and to know each other. And, and inside this fireplace of marriage, this passion can burn as hot as it can possibly get. No limit on how hot this can burn inside of a marriage. But it's only inside of that boundary line that people don't get burned. So he's saying, if you have that, then you should get married. For it is better for a man to marry than to be aflame with passion. Verse 9. Now some of you might say this. Well, is that all marriage is for? I mean, you feel that? Like, Paul, you just say, well, if you've got, you've got burning desires, just get married. No, that's not what he's saying. Here's one, what one commentator says. Some will complain that Paul here is giving expression to a low view of marriage. That it's just about sex. But, of course, he's not. He is not here expounding his view on the marriage state, as he does in Ephesians 5. He is not saying that this is the only reason for marriage. He's dealing with it as a specific question in light of the actual circumstances. Does that make sense? So you have to be very careful not to just push something in here that's not here. 
He's saying, I understand the specific of this situation, and I'm just trying to answer specifically. I'm not giving you a marriage seminar. So, we, again, we want to be careful not to take one verse and just say, I have a burning desire. I must get married. That wouldn't be wise. There would be a lot that goes into choosing who you should get married, and that would not be the only reason to get married. All right, number three, third takeaway. These few verses, Paul delivers an entirely new sexual ethic. In here, when this was read in the church in Corinth, I have no doubt that there was an audible gasp when these verses were were read aloud. I think everyone went, what? And the reason it was so different is because it was so male-dominated in the Roman Empire that the woman was basically a piece of property. So in the marriage context, the man owned all the property, owned all the wealth, and owned his wife. So everything revolved around the man. There wasn't any mutuality in here. And when Paul says every woman should and every man should three times in here, everybody's like, what? This is totally different than what I thought. He, he's putting totally quality here in this relationship between a man and a woman who's married, which was stunning for these people to hear. This would have been explosive. And Paul's new ethic here was enormously liberating for women and quite a humble adjustment for men. Which is what happens when Christianity enters most cultures. It's enormously liberating for women. It brings them up to a standard. It's the same as men. And it requires quite a humble adjustment for men to read these words, particularly in certain cultures. I was doing a seminar in Africa, and I realized there's customs. But in this particular area, polygamy was okay, even inside the church. And men walked ahead of their wives and would never carry anything. So I just thought visually that seemed distorting to me. So she'd have the groceries, she'd have the kids, she'd have whatever, and the man would always be three, four, five feet out ahead, never having anything in his arms. And somehow inside this culture, see, they just didn't really understand the mutuality of the marriage relationship. I realize there's some cultures that are going to be different than others, but I think what Paul's trying to say here is when two people become one, they have an equality in this area of marriage. And that was explosive for these people. Fourth thing here, verse 3, fourth takeaway. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights or what is due her. And likewise, the wife to her husband. So I would say a couple of things here. First, except in unusual circumstances, every healthy marriage should contain sexual activity. Remember, I said this a few times a few weeks ago. You know, Satan wants you to have as much sex before you get married as you possibly can and as little sex after you're married. That's what he's after. And so inside of a marriage, you should have a healthy marriage. You, have, you should have a healthy sexual activity. And if you don't, 
then probably that's a sign that there's a, there's a symptom of a greater problem inside your marriage. But I want you to notice this is very important here. Notice that the sexual ethic here is about giving and not getting. You see that? This is, very, this is probably the most important word in the whole, cha- whole chapter here. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife. The wife should give to her husband. It's not about getting. It's about giving. So the focus in marital intimacy is on the needs of the other person. A, a healthy sexuality inside of a marriage or when two people are giving to each other, not when two people are getting things. When two people come together to get something, then you have something that's unhealthy, which is why pornography is so destructive. Because it's only about getting. There's no possibility of giving in that situation. Now, this is a huge topic. And I would say maybe the mo- one of the most sensitive topics I could even talk about, period, with anybody. And it obviously requires a lot more time. So let me just state a couple of obvious things. Number one, and this isn't a newsflash, men and women are wired differently. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Men and women are wired differently. That might be the only thing some of you all need to know. Because you know what? If you're trying to give to somebody in the way you would like to receive, but they don't want to receive it that way, right? So... I get up in the morning and I'm in the shower and I'm saying, Nancy, I'm ready to give. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's not going to think too much about that. That's not what she's thinking about in that moment. But see, a lot of men are wired in one particular way and they're trying to give in a way that they think their wife would really want because it's what they would want. And that's not the way women, most women are wired. So we have to be very careful, and you'll need to pray for my wife, obviously, after this. (laughs) Read an article titled this, Men are like light bulbs and women are like irons. So when you flip the switch for a guy, hey, we're ready to go. But women are like irons. You plug in an iron, you walk away a day later, okay, it's it's hot, right? Okay, we're ready to go. Right? Takes time. Takes time, and, and... and to, to get to those places, two different kinds of things need to happen in that way. Uh, love, and mar- love and Respect, great book on marriage if you're looking for something to read. Love and Respect. Quote, a wife has one driving need. Now, we're saying typically. A wife has one driving need. To feel emotionally connected. To feel loved. When that need is met, she's happy. A husband has one driving need, to feel respected. When that need is met, he is happy. When either of those needs aren't met, things get crazy. So even if that's not exactly true for you, there are driving needs that you have as a wife or driving needs you have as a 
husband that need to be clearly communicated with your spouse. Please don't make them guess. And so you're saying, hey, we want to have this beautiful thing inside of our marriage. And, and this is the way that, that if you gave to me, that that would move me towards you. And it might not have anything to do, men, with anything sexual for quite a long time. It might just be listening and caring and nurturing and making her feel safe. And then she's ready to give. So we have to really understand how we're wired in different ways, and we have to communicate that, that what we need. Now, this takes work, and David said it very clearly here at the announcement about the, the, um, class, the conference that we're doing. So I'm encouraging you to come, and if you're a couple, you just need somebody else to give you questions you can ask to each other because you get in ruts and you can't seem to get out of the ruts, and sometimes a conference helps you think through those kinds of things. But I, w- I want to say that in your marriage, if, if there's not intimacy and it starts to grow cold, that's, Satan loves that. Because you still have a lot of those same desires, whether you're male or female. When that goes cold and you don't want to work on that anymore, that is a double wide door for Satan to work through. Remember last week I said I, I get a news feed and on the side of my news feed, 50-year-old women looking for you, Paul Phillips. Russian women looking for you. Women from Asia. I mean, all these women around the world are looking for me. But you, you see what happens if if something's grown cold, boy, that starts looking attractive. Something's grown cold for a woman, and some man just comes alongside to say, "Hey, tell me about you. Tell me about your day." Very attractive. So you have to care for the the soul of your spouse to say, "I know there's temptations out there for you, and part of my role." It's to give you the things that would help you feel like you're safe here. Everything's safe in this environment. That's part of your role as a wife, part of your role as a husband. Okay, I could say a lot more. Going to get roasted for lunch. I totally understand that. You're going to have a lot of questions. And I would just say, hey, let's, if you have those questions, let's try to come back to me and say, hey, what, what about if? And we can get some pastoral advice. We can get some help from the Bible to know how to move in healthy directions. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a very sensitive topic. And you spend a a chapter and a half just trying to talk about the different scenarios. Because it's so important, this this good God-designed intimacy has, has been meant for so much destruction. And so I pray that you would help us to know how to move in a godly way, how to glorify God in our bodies. I pray for for many of us here who have scars from the past that we would remember the gospel, that your grace is enough for all of our sins, that you, you paid it all, 
And there is now no more fear, no more guilt, no more shame, but freedom. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.